Our gospel lesson today comes from uh, the great gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Let's share in God's good word together. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus came to save the outsider. Jesus came to save the outcast. And yes, Jesus even came to save the outlaw. Now, normally we go right into the text and the explication of the text, but this morning I'm aware that here in Edmond around Oklahoma City in United Methodism, it has been a week, it's been a difficult week for so many. Uh, two of our larger churches in our area have voted to disaffiliate from our family, which is super painful for many of us. And so I wanted to share uh, a bit of who we are, because we know we have a lot of guests here today, and will at the next service as well. So just wanted to let you know that you're among friends, and I want to be as clear as we can, because around here we say clear is kind. We want to be clear. Friends, you've probably heard or read on the front page of the Oklahoman this week about conflict within our denomination. It can be confusing. So here's my story and why I am staying United Methodist. In 1959, John Foster graduated from Southern Methodist University's Theological School in Dallas, Texas. That's my dad. And after serving Methodist churches in Calumet, Oklahoma, and Blair, Oklahoma, John moved to Stillwater to be on staff at First United Methodist Church and to find a wife. <laughs> there he met an attractive Sunday school superintendent from Alabama named Carol Morgan. After a Sunday school party that she had invited him to, they began to date and were married in 1964 in the First Methodist Church of Stillwater. This week was their 59th anniversary. Bishop Angie Smith appointed John to the Methodist Church in Tallahena, Oklahoma, where my sister Deborah was born in 1965. Dad was then appointed to the Methodist Church in Ringling, Oklahoma, where I was born in November of 1967. A few months later, on April 23, 1968, my parents drove to Dallas, witnessed the birth of a new denomination that joined the Evangelical United Brethren, you may know them as EUB, and the Methodist Church to form the United Methodist Church. Friends, I have been United Methodist since the day it started. I've been United Methodist in Ringling, where I was baptized. I was United Methodist in Prattville, Oklahoma, where at age five, for the first time, I painted and laid tile to help build a new church building. I was confirmed at First United Methodist Church of Bartlesville, where I started Boy Scouts, a troop two, and went to church camp for the first time at Camp Egan near Tahlequah, Oklahoma, one of three United Methodist camps in our state. I learned how to share my faith at Guthrie First United Methodist Church through what was then known as Lay Witness Mission. I was thrilled to hike up to the cross at Canyon Camp in junior high and swim at the lakefront at Cross Point Camp near Kingston, Oklahoma. When we moved to Fairview, Oklahoma, I gave my first capital campaign gift for land my junior year of high school, where the United Methodist Church in Fairview, Oklahoma now stands. Even on vacation, we would either be at Granny Ann's Church at Nichols Hills or Granny Dot's Church at Lafayette Street, United Methodist Church in Dothan, Alabama, where she too was Sunday school superintendent. 
We had to go to Sunday school, too. <laughs> Talk about awkward. Later, I was cared for by the Wesley Foundation at Oklahoma State in Stillwater. Attended services over the summer at Washington Street Square United Methodist Church in New York City, where I was interning. And served as an adult youth leader at age 22 at First United Methodist Church of Waterloo, Iowa, where I was working. It was in the sanctuary of that church where I asked Chantel to marry me, while Reverend Darwin hid in the balcony to run sound in a spotlight and take video of the proposal to me as a gift. I know. (laughs) And Darwin would also do our premarital counseling, which he now says was hilarious. (laughs) Now, the wonderful people of Centenary United Methodist Church in Lawton, Oklahoma, where my mom and dad were working at the time, put on an extravagant wedding shower for Chantel and I, even though they didn't know us because we were still in college in Stillwater. We were married in Tulsa at New Haven United Methodist Church, where Chantel was baptized and confirmed and where I began my candidacy for ordained ministry. Reverend Cliff Summy in Charlotte, North Carolina, asked Chantel to come on staff as the program director at St. Paul's United Methodist Church while I was working at NBC News Channel. So when we moved to Tulsa for me to work at KJRH Channel 2, our first weekend was to find a church. Find a church home at First United Methodist Church, where we led senior high um, youth and sang in the choir. And it was in that season when I was called to ministry at a revival at another United Methodist Church across town called Faith. And that call was confirmed at another United Methodist Church in Tulsa, at a walk called Emmaus at Christ United Methodist Church. So when we moved to Dallas for me to attend the same theological school as my dad, I was welcomed as youth director at Wiley United Methodist Church and then minister of evangelism at Highland Park United Methodist Church, where they threw an amazing baby shower for us even though we would be gone before our baby would be born. My first full-time appointment in Oklahoma was Tobinko, United Methodist Church in 1996, where John Mark was born. Right? One of my favorite photos of him. And on February 1st, 1999, I was appointed to start a new United Methodist Church north of 2nd Street and south of Waterloo Road in Edmond. And only a few months later, Noah was born. So was Acts 2 United Methodist Church. I will have been the pastor of this dream of bringing heaven to earth for nearly 25 years. Thousands of beautiful souls have come alongside me to help non-religious and non-active Christians become radical Christ followers. Most of all, God has been faithful every step of the way. As we simply devote ourselves to Scripture, to really being there for one another, to eating together in our homes and in the sanctuary at communion, and asking God to guide all of it as we seek the will of Jesus and prayer. So let me be clear. I am, I have been, I will be United Methodist. And as I promised God at my confirmation, as many of you promised God at your confirmation, they said this, as members of Christ Universal Church, will you be loyal to the United Methodist Church and do all in your power to strengthen its ministries? I answered, I will. Years later, at my ordination as an elder on May 28, 1998, at Boston Avenue United Methodist Church in Tulsa, I was asked by the bishop, will you be loyal to the United Methodist Church, accepting its order, its liturgy, its doctrine, and discipline, defending it against all doctrines contrary to God's holy word, and committing yourself, this is the important part, committing yourself to be accountable with those serving with you and to the bishop? and those who are appointed to supervise your ministry. 
That's a big question. I answered yes. So friends, that commitment, that vow, never changed. We exist as a church today, you and I, because in 1998, more than 400 United Methodist churches across Oklahoma chose to give sacrificially beyond their own interest to start our church with my family and $150,000. 75, first year, 50, the second year, 25, the third year. My salary was 35000 of that. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy setting up and tearing down worship space for seven years in a cafetorium from 1999 to 2006. Thank you, Carol Smith, Carolyn Smith. It wasn't easy when we had to double the budget within six weeks to survive our opening first sanctuary. And it hasn't been easy building two more buildings, surviving COVID together, and staying together in one of the most polarized times in our nation's history. It has been worth it. It's been worth it, every second of it. And I believe, church, that our best days are ahead of us, not behind. You may sense that. You may sense that with all the energy that we have on Wednesday nights now, with record numbers of young people learning how to follow Jesus, and most of all, I trust Jesus. Acts to United Methodist Church was his idea, not mine. So again, I say this day, yes, I will, as a United Methodist, remember that we are called to serve rather than be served, to proclaim the faith of the church and no other, and to look after the concerns of God Above all, for the glory of God. Amen. So that's who we are. Sometimes we just need to remember what God has done. There's so many people, so many people over time. So the good news, good news according to the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus loves you. This I know. For the Bible, the Gospel of Luke tells us so. We're in this sermon series. It will culminate at Easter. So in week one, we learn that when the world says you're out, what does God say? Nope, you're in. And we've had people say, no, 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 you're too young or you're too old. God says what? No, I can use you, right? There's nothing too about you. You are just right. Just right, just right for whatever God calls you to do. God will see you through. Marie Fortune, uh, a great theologian, puts it this way. She says, when God answers, shows the way, and opens the door, then we have to walk through it. We have to do our part. That was week one. Week two is this. When the world says, you're a woman, you're out. God says, no, you're in. You're in. You thank God for women. They're the only ones at the tomb. We would not be here without them. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus walked with, worked with, and honored women. And so will we. The chair of our administrative council sits right there. It's Kathy Wallace. She's a great leader for us. In week three, when the up and in say that you are down and out, what's God say? Nope, you're in, you're in. See, Jesus told story after story after story, parables, where the nobody was the somebody who did the right thing. And people were amazed at his teaching. They had never heard anything like it. 
And then when the world says, you're untouchable, you're out. God says, no, you're in. And Jesus reaches in and touches your pain. You see, lepers were regarded and treated as outcasts. And Samaritans were to be excluded. And so Jesus actually goes from Nazareth to Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. And he touches a leper and made a Samaritan the hero of a story. You see, with God, there are no nobodies. And anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Say it with me. With God, there are no nobodies. And anybody can be somebody in Jesus' name. That's our story, and we're sticking to it. If you're here, you're welcome here, because God brought you here. Period. Not. That's it. So, as one person said it more eloquently than I, we do want you to know that everybody's welcome here. Bad behavior is not. You can't be mean here. You're not allowed to, to be mean to one another. Right? We love one another. That's what Jesus teaches. That's his last commandment. Love one another. So today we come to the beginning of Jesus' final week. There's way too much going on. Uh, in the scriptures and in Jesus' life this last week for us to cover in one week. So, but this is what I want you to know. That what Jesus says and what Jesus does in the final week of his life, it tells us a lot about what Jesus values most. Think about your life. If you knew you had one week to live, what would this next week look like? Who would you spend time with? Would you pay your taxes? Jesus, they tried to get Jesus on that one too. I'm not saying anything. So, so what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? So it, it starts in Luke 18, right? And this is what he said. Then Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished for he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. And after they have flogged him, They will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. The disciples, they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You see, when we read this, it's easy to forget that Jesus knows that in a week, he will be on the cross. He'll be put to death in Jerusalem. That's what awaits him. And he knows it. And he goes anyway. You see, the suffering of Jesus was not something being done to him. Jesus chose the nails for you, chose the cross for you, for the world. Dallas Willard, uh, one of my mentors who passed a number of years ago, says it like this about Jesus. Suffer? Certainly he did. But it is Jesus himself who who was in charge of events and people involved in the story. Jesus said at a crucial turning point in his career, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his crucifixion, will draw all people to myself. How many people are drawn to Jesus? All. All. And with his incredible power and attractiveness, there were many, many ways that Jesus could have avoided the cross had he wished to do so. And he did wish to do so in the garden. And he asked God to let it go on. But that was the way. And he chose it. He must never, ever put Jesus in the victim category. He is the victor. He's the victor. So these are things that Jesus said on his way, knowing what would happen to him. But what did he do? His actions speak louder of words, of course. Well, let's see. As Jesus approached Jericho, there was a blind man 
who was sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And then this blind man shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is a a sign of royalty here. Those who were in front sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he shouted even more loudly. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Friends, you know this is Jesus' question. This is the question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And the tragedy is, many of us don't know. But Jesus is willing. Jesus is able. Jesus is ready. What do you need Jesus to do for you? Where is your heart broken? Where are you afraid? Where are you sick? Invite Jesus in. He's asking, what do you want me to do for you? That's his question. Because he loves you. And the blind man said what you'd expect him to say. I want to see. Lord, let me see again. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. And immediately he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, they praised God. They'd never seen anything like it. You see, Jesus, first of all, notices the hurting. He slows down enough to see and to stop and to look and to listen and to heal. He gave sight to the blind. And not just physical healings, but relational healings as well. And so as he entered Jericho, that dangerous place on the way to Jerusalem, and he was passing through it, a man was there named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector. That's going to be super important here in a minute. And he was rich. We would say he was super rich. Because he was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not. It's probably also safer in the tree. Because he was short in stature. People don't like him. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass by that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and read it with me. Come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, when I went to Bible school and so many of those Methodist churches I listed, we sang a little song that goes like this. If you know the first verse, say it with me. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And now churches do the second verse all different, lots of different ways. This is what I'm going to use. And then the Lord passed by and said, Zacchaeus, you come down from there. I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house Friends, if Jesus will go to Zacchaeus' house, he'll go to your house. He'll come to you. You have to worry about that. Isn't it amazing that Jesus invited himself to stay with the most dishonest, the most money-loving traitor of his people? There was not someone worse than the chief tax collector because tax collectors got rich by taking more money from their people than the Roman government required. They were rich enough to buy the contract, and not only that... They could get as much as they wanted. You see, Zacchaeus was one of the wealthiest and worst offenders because he's described as a chief tax collector, which means there were other tax collectors working for him. And he got a cut of that too. He really was the worst of the worst. Adam Hamilton um, 
is going to say something really important here in just a second. So, so he hurried down and was happy to welcome him, and all who saw it began to grumble. Yeah, they did. He's gone to be the guest of one who's a sinner. We hate that guy. Right? Adam Hamilton says, It's still hard to imagine that religious people would be grumbling about Jesus spending time and befriending non-religious people. Wouldn't you think that they would be happy about that? Wouldn't they be happy that God is a God of love? They didn't see it that way. Jesus must have been soft on sin, they would say. Earlier in Luke, they concluded that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard. They even said he was working for the prince of demons. That's what they said about him. You see, Zacchaeus' neighbors, they despised him. They despised him for sharing in the Roman domination. And it was brutal. It was brutal. And what did Zacchaeus do? He stood there and said to the Lord. Now notice, he's not back at his house. He just came straight down from the tree. And that whole crowd, it's still there. And in the midst of his community, he says, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And there's poor in that crowd. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and everybody goes, me, me, me. That's me. I will pay back four times as much. He had a lot of giving back to do. You see, Zacchaeus' change of heart happens in the middle of the crowd that hates him. Not as his house. So important, friends. You know why? Because Jesus is making clear that even when everyone around you says, you're out. What's he say? You're in. You're in with me. You're in. You see, our salvation is not about us. It's about Jesus' character. It's always been about Jesus' character. That's why the cross is front and center. So Jesus says to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. A son of Abraham? Are you kidding me? The greatest patriarch? For the Son of Man, a name that Jesus uses for himself, came to seek out and, say with me, save the lost. Save the lost. Now, some people get offended, like, oh, don't, you know, don't use the word lost. Friends, if it's lost, it's valuable. If it's not lost, it's trash. But if it's lost, it's valuable. It just hasn't been placed in a place at its highest and best use yet. Like your car keys. Right? Anybody sit around and... Look at the beauty of your keys on your table. Probably not. If you want to drive your car, you're going to look for them though, aren't you? Unless you got one of those beeper things. I don't know what to do with that. So our goal here, friends, is to help non-religious and non-active Christians follow Jesus, become radical Christ followers. And man, sometimes that is glorious and sometimes it is brutal. Because our hearts get hard when we forget what Jesus has done for us. I want to share with you my favorite cartoon. We have edited it some, so don't Google it or show it to your kids later. <laughs> this is my favorite cartoon. It's called Gary and Jesus. Jesus says, be kind to everyone. And they say, wait, even Gary? Yeah, Gary's the worst. And Jesus says, look, we've been through this. Yes, be kind to Gary as well. Ha ha, you losers. Not now, Gary. <laughs> I've been in that meeting, right? That's the way it is with us, isn't it? You see, friends, even at our worst, God sees the person you can be, not the person you have been. That's what's so great about Jesus. 
Say it with me. God sees the person you can be, not the person you have been. So what happens next in the story? Well, he, he's doing all of this. He says he knows what he's doing. And he goes on to Jerusalem. And we just read right over that in the Bible, but I, w- I want to show you what Jesus is doing here. He is going up to the Mount of Olives, which I've been to twice. Some of you have been with me. It's a beautiful place. It oversees Jerusalem. It is way up there. And, and to get here from Jericho, you have to walk uphill for roughly six to eight hours to get to the Mount of Olives. And it's not just uphill, it is uphill. So you see Jericho down here, below sea level. This is where Jesus heals the blind man. And when he gets to the Mount of Olives, where is it? No, nope, nope. You ever be like, oh, that's the last mountain. Nope, nope, nope. All the way to there. Which looks down on Jerusalem, by the way. It's higher than Jerusalem, right? And that is a hall. And when he gets there, you know what Jesus asked for? A donkey. Why? Why would Jesus ask for a donkey? He just made one of the hardest treks known to man at the time. And he's like, hey, 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 no, I think I need a donkey now. Well, that was about his lordship, about his kingship, about fulfilling the prophecy. It wasn't about him being tired. It wasn't that he needed it. He's going to show the world who he is. And, of course, next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we're going to talk all about that. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, Jesus challenges not the Romans, not the common people. He challenges the religious authorities because their hearts were hard. Scripture says it like this. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there because they were selling them at an upcharge. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. He was messing with their livelihood, with their lives. And by the end of the week, Jesus will be hanging on a cross between two criminals. And the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he's promised, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, some of you may know the preacher Alistair Begg. I had a good friend share a clip with me this week. I won't do it justice. He has a very strong accent, and forgive me, I'll come in and out of it because that's just how I hear it. It's, it's, it's weird, but I'll just hang in there with me. He talks about the thief on the cross. And he talks about, if you aren't in our tradition, maybe you grew up in a place where the preacher would say something like, you know, if you knew that you were going to die tonight, or, you know, how are you going to get into heaven? What would you say? What, you know, would there be enough evidence to convict you as a Christian? Those sorts of things. Maybe you heard that at summer camp or at a revival. Those things happen. It's not really where we live here. We're people of grace. And we know that Jesus paid it all. Amen. Jesus paid it all. But here's the thing. This is what he says about that. He says, if you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? He says this. If the answer is in the first person, we've immediately got it wrong. If you stand before the Lord or before Peter, before an angel, and you say, because I... Because I believed, because I had great faith, because I am this or I am that, because I am continuing on to perfection, whatever it is, loved ones. The only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he, 
So think about the thief on the cross, he says. What an immense gift. And then he says, I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how'd that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. And you've never been to Bible study, he says. And you never got baptized, he says. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? And that's what the angel must have said, right? I mean, the guy pops up and he's in front of the angel. He's like, what are you doing here? Like, they're not on the list. He goes, well, I don't know. And the angel says, well, what do you mean you don't know? He says, I don't know. Because I don't know. He says, well, you know, he says, excuse me. This is way over his pay grade. He says, I got to get me a supervisor. So they go to get a supervisor angel. And they come back. And he says, so we just have a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of the justification of faith? <laughs> the guy says, I've never heard of it in my life. And he says, well, what about, let's, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. And the guy's just staring. He's got nothing. And eventually, in frustration, the angel says to him, on what basis are you here? And he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the only answer, friends. That is the only answer. That's it. That's our faith. The man on the middle cross says you can come. That is the only answer. The only answer. Thanks be to God. So our action step this week is this. Ask Jesus to remember you right where you are today and let him know your need. Your real need. Not as you hope to be. Not as you were. But as you are. Come to him. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.